the right deal for them might not be on the table at the time or we might try to do a deal and it might not work out. Um, but the key thing is, is don't be so, like you said, short-sighted on the immediate opportunity. And just, you know, because real estate is all relationship-based and it's a longevity game. Eventually, you know, the right situation and the right opportunity will present itself. And if you have something to offer, just by staying in contact with them, you know, sending them deals that might work periodically or every time something good comes across your table um, or just checking in with them and just seeing how things are going on, seeing what they're working on, you know, what their pain points are. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, so we have Tyler Sarter on today. Super, super stoked to have you. Former basketball player, third-generation real estate investor, agent. You operate nationwide, and you hopped into the game not just in the residential side, but in both the commercial and residential. Your first transaction was helping an investor buy a church and convert it into a grocery store. So we got all kinds of nuggets today for you guys. Some of you might be investing in residential, but want to expand your horizons. So stay tuned throughout the whole episode. Tyler, if you wouldn't mind, take us into your craziest real estate transaction you've had so far. <sighs> craziest real estate transaction so far. There's been a couple, but um, there's one that I'm going to touch on in particular because it's actually pretty fresh in my mind. It's one of the more recent deals that we've done um, here in Detroit, which is where I was originally born and raised at. We have a few pockets where there's some historical neighborhoods, like some really old, beautiful homes. And in this um, particular instance, I was working with also an investor who's a little bit senior, a little bit older. Uh, he was a 90-year-old gentleman looking to cash out on some of his portfolio as a part of his uh, late retirement plan, has some plans to uh, get out of real estate and move out of the country. And with this deal in particular, it was we worked on it for about a year and a half, actually, before we actually closed it, um, because the owner was unaware that there were some issues with the title. Uh, so we went through different title companies. It was a really peculiar issue that needs to be resolved, but we ended up having to do a quiet title suit. That took a long time. Then we had a buyer, a couple buyers that fell out. Um, then we finally found the right um, person from Canada. Actually, I do a lot of work with investors from Canada because they're right across the bridge. Um, and that after a year and a half, we actually closed it. And then the investor ended up converting it into a two family, which I thought was pretty cool because the house was just so big. Um, he thought that that would be the best uh, use for it. But give yeah, us an idea of the size. How, how big was the house? So it was about close to almost 4,000, 4,500 square feet. So it was like a really beautiful, well-maintained home in the Boston Edison district, um, which is not too far from where my you know family is actually from, like almost the same neighborhood. So it felt good to do a deal in my backyard. I just uh, had to go along on the roller coaster ride as far as getting it done. <laughs> Love this. Yeah. So talk to us about Detroit. So that's where you grow up. I was there in July. I loved it. Now, granted, it was the summertime. It was beautiful. I got to go downtown, see the sports stadiums, that type of thing. Growing up, I heard so much about Detroit, like don't go there, et cetera. 
like you've done a lot of deals there. You live there. Like what is there to love about Detroit? And tell us about some of the deals you're doing. Um, so Detroit is a really blue collar, hardworking town. Uh, a lot of hardworking people. Um, it has a lot of rich history, you know, with the automotive industry and the music industry with Motown. Um, so it, it's kind of like uh, I use the word there's beauty in the struggle because this has been hit by hard times. Um, but as of late, we're really rebounding, like really turning the corner. Um, there's tons of development everywhere, new construction um, everywhere. So it's an exciting time. Um, the job market is also really good. So um, a lot of these corporations are recruiting top talent from a lot of these top universities to come work. So there's an influx of new blood coming into the city and a new energy almost that's kind of revitalizing the city as well. Um, and we're right along in the wave of that as far as the deals that we're doing. Um, uh, taking down uh, single family portfolios is a lot of what we've been doing um, lately. Um, and also looking at some apartment buildings, um, not only wholesaling them, but um, buying a hold and renovating as well. So that's kind of like where we're headed for 2023, but we've definitely been working with a lot of single family rental portfolios, section eight uh, portfolios. Very cool. Yeah, I was with Matt in Detroit too. Um, we actually were in the Boston Edison district. That's actually where I was staying. So, I mean, the, the Motown mansion and all that stuff, very cool stuff. What I really loved about Detroit, cause I'm from Chicago. I mean, obviously architecturally very similar, but you guys have these 4,500 square foot houses, which simply don't exist in my market. And you have some experience rehabbing these. I'm sure they're certified historic too. So we could talk, can we talk about the process of how that looks on fixing one of these houses? Cause I'm sure there's a bunch of hoops to jump through. Yes, a lot of, especially when you're talking about in those specific districts, um, there's a lot of legwork that has to be done with the city. A lot of follow-up and approvals that come um, from the city as well. Uh, and then you have the neighbors, you know, you got to make sure that you're, you're, you know, welcome in the neighborhood. You, you make yourself known, aware of what you have plans of doing. And that makes the process a lot easier as well. Um, so that's just been my experience um, dealing with flipping in historical neighborhoods. But uh, like I said, there's a lot of new people moving to the city. So um, the good part is your exit strategy is uh, pretty solidified with a lot of these projects from just my experience and my peers. As well. You mentioned that the, there's beauty in the struggle. Like, I'd like to go much deeper into that statement. Like, can you describe what that means for Detroit? And then is that somehow attached to you personally? Like, does that have meaning? Yeah, so I think it embodies the spirit of Detroit uh, in a sense, because um, that's like the whole city's mantra. Uh, it makes people from Detroit, they might have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder just because of the outside perception from the west of the world. We've been labeled one of the worst cities to live in for years and pretty much every major publication um, that you can read out of there. But uh, the people in Detroit are beautiful people. They're, like I said, they're really hardworking and um, they're resourceful. We're really resourceful people. Like we have a get it done 
by any means type of um, type of methodology, uh, methodology that we kind of operate with. And that gives us kind of an advantage. And yeah, that definitely applies to me personally, um, just growing up and especially in real estate, I always had a strong interest for real estate, but just didn't know what my path was going to be or how to get in the game, so to speak. So I kind of had to take um, a different unorthodox route um, and I'm still on my path. I'm definitely on my journey to success, but that mentality has played a huge part in that. So you've done over a hundred deals and listeners that listen to a second or third generation, like Tim's second generation into real estate, I'm first generation and you're third generation. So we got like some span here that we could talk yeah. about when you're first generation, people know, okay, you did it yourself. When you're second generation, third generation, they don't know how much of it was Tyler, how much of it like was silver spoon type of thing. Yeah, right. You've done over a hundred deals, which I know is a lot to do with you, but yeah. can you describe what has been the positive impact of having two generations of investors before you? And maybe what are some of the ways that you have it stepped beyond right. what, what they've taught? Yeah. So um, for me specifically, it was my grandfather and then my mother um, who kind of paved the way for me. But where I stepped in was kind of revitalizing and picking back up the family business, so to speak, because we had kind of fell by the wayside. So just a quick history lesson. My granddad was, uh, his name was Marcus Woodson. He was responsible for a lot of land syndication deals, dealing with our sports stadiums downtown, which you had a chance to visit. So Ford Field, Comerica Park, and then now LCA, which is Little Caesars Arena, where the Detroit Pistons play. Um, following that, my mother is also a licensed agent um, who assisted in some um, development back in the mid-90s. There was a development um, called Compo Farms. Uh, it was a condominium or a townhome development. And then that went well and fine, but somewhere along the line, things got lost in translation. And that's where me and my brother decided to pick things up actually from scratch uh, and then kind of build our own, um, our own way or carve out our own niche. So the history was there, but there wasn't the connections also help because people remember who my grandfather was and people know my mother. So it's easy to connect the dots and people are willing to help us. But as far as like the nitty gritty, uh, we had to kind of build from ground zero. Absolutely. Um, so I'm just curious because in my case, this has certainly um, been applied. Is there anything that you learned being a third generation person that you wish you'd learned differently because you're, you're, your ancestors will say we're doing it in a way that was not quite the most efficient. Yeah. So for me personally, and I'm uh, definitely applying this right now and in 2023, do as like do big deals, like shoot for, because it's the same process, whether you're going to do a small deal or a big deal. So you might as well just do a big deal is why do a 50, home portfolio as opposed to doing one or two if you can because it's literally the same process it's just about how hard are you willing to work are you willing to dot all your i's and cross all your t's to make it happen so that's the good thing about real estate your income is not capped so don't put a cap on yourself and that's um, my new year's resolution going into 2023 for myself just um want to, you know, play on the biggest level possible, like the NBA. So 
That's it. And you guys are former basketball players. So that is super, super awesome. Let's talk about one thing that's really passionate uh, for Tim and I is we want to help people reach financial freedom as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, like all those types of things. If you had to retire, basically, if you had to create financial freedom in excess of $10,000 a month, and you had to do it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, like, you know, you, let's say there's a clock on you, you're going to die, you're going to get cancer, and you, you want to get that done before you die. Like, what's the fastest way you think the best way to become financially free if you're starting from zero? Um, to be financially free if you're starting from zero, I would start with, you know, it's all about cash flow. So um, I would position myself as quickly as possible to obtain multi unit families, whether you're starting off with a duplex or a fourplex, whatever. But eventually it's like Monopoly, trade in those greenhouses for that red hotel, so to speak, as quickly as you can. Um, it also keeps less headache um, when you're trying to you know, manage a bunch of doors as opposed to managing everything under one property. So I would get into apartments. And then from there, I would scale into the commercial side, which is... Um, owning commercial properties and then executing triple net leases. So that's my goal um, to own, let's say a vacant building would, would be perfect for a Starbucks. I have Starbucks as my tenant for 10 years or so. And even if Starbucks doesn't finish out their whole lease, at least I'll get paid for the time that they, you know, weren't able to fulfill, or maybe they will, but I have as little liability as possible. Um, and I'm making that very lucrative cash flow. So that would be my rough outline for anybody looking to accomplish that. Talk to me. Your first deal was a church that turned into a grocery store. Talk, like why that one? How did that deal come about? How did you present confidently? Like most people start with buying their first house on an FHA style loan, yeah. being guided by an agent. It's like, they're, they're coddled through the process, right? You know, your first deal is connecting, if, correct me if I'm wrong on this, an international investor to a, a church building. It's like, right. like that, like just the, the word international, like makes people shake in their boots, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Walk me through the mindset and, and how did that all come together? Yeah. So like I said, my route was a little bit unconventional and unplanned really for that matter. I didn't know who was going to be my buyer or how I was going to get it done. But I had a very close friend of mine and we're still close to this day who actually acquired that property through a tax for to, through a tax foreclosure. Um, and, you know, he didn't really have an idea for what he wanted to do with it at that time. Um, I think he had some other ventures that he was looking to get into regarding music. So he was like, Hey, can you help me sell this property? And I was like, sure. Uh, I just, just, you know, did my, did my research, got my first assignment contract and purchase agreement put together. Um, and I was off to the races. Uh, and I actually. So for clarity, you yeah. probably weren't an agent at that point then. I was not an agent at that point. Yeah. So I started this is, off- this is so interesting. Like, yeah. because I thought about this now, some States are starting to institute laws that you have to have a license to be a wholesaler. But if you're not in a state that requires that, you can essentially yeah. just say like, this is really smart, right? Like you could say, Hey, yeah, I can't, I can't make a commission and list it for you. Just give me a contract. Yeah. And, and then I get to sell the contract. 
Exactly. So yeah, that's how I, that's exactly how I did it. Um, I actually didn't become a licensed agent and I'm licensed in the state of Georgia um, and Michigan has reciprocity. So I'm able to operate in both jurisdictions, but I actually didn't become a licensed agent until probably about 2018. Um, so yeah, I was, got my first contracts together. Um, I was marketing everywhere you could imagine, bigger pockets, forms, Craigslist, um, LinkedIn, you name it, bandit signs, um, talking to people at Home Depot, leaving my cards at different offices around the city. And eventually I got um, a call from, I believe this person was from the islands and they came, the, like I said, it was a church and they came and attended a Sunday service actually and sat in on the service to kind of scope out the property with me. And they thought that it would be a good space for a specialty grocery store, which is what they acquired it and used it for. Um, and that whole process took about just over 30 days. So um, from the first time I got my, you know, my contract signed, I was able to have my first closing 30 days, give or take later um, after that. Love it. In, in the general civilian wor world, they don't talk about money. It's like, don't talk about your dollars. In the real estate world, what I love is people usually freely share. So yeah. tell us, how many dollars were on your first real estate deal check? Uh, man, so me and my brother split it up 50-50, and I believe it was about 2500 <laughs> or something. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it was a small yeah. little one. Yeah, it was a good one. Baby check. It gave me the confidence to know that this was actually possible. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That the check would actually clear, and this was a real thing. So once that's all the belief you know, social proof that I needed to keep going. And um, here we are. Today. So that gives you the jump, but you found this international buyer, like walk us through the process mentally to make the decision that you wanted to pursue international buyers. And then the actuality, the, the process of how have you now built a business around international buyers? Right. So here in Detroit, believe it or not, it's a lot more common to work with international buyers than a lot of other places. The reason being um, during the economic crash, you know, when you think about 2008 and then the years that followed that, property prices were extremely cheap compared to other places. Um, and it attracted naturally people from Canada, people from Israel, um, people from the islands who were interested in scooping up these properties, you know, for pennies on the dollar, so to speak. Um, and then, like I said, my first deal was with an uh, international buyer and the deal went well. And there were other referrals that came from that. Um, and then other referrals that came from that. So it's kind of been like a full circle moment where, you know, you do good, do good follows you. So um, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to work with some people from Australia, to work with a lot of people from the Toronto, Canada area as well, Ontario, Canada, um, and a few other folks in Germany uh, and Israel who are, you know, all active investors um, in Detroit. Absolutely tremendous stuff, man. Your network is your net worth, right? You might as well make it international. You got buyers in yes, Canada, Germany, all over now. So that's amazing. Yeah. And the uh, secret to the audience is, you know, if you're looking to get into that route, if you can, you know, find out, you know, people, investors who have trust, like if you go back and look at, you know, um, 
who purchased the property and if you could identify, you know, land trust or revocable trust, usually those are going to be um, your big purchasers or your big buyers, just from my experience. Awesome, man. Thank you for that advice. Go check out these people that are in land trust and buying houses. They're good people to connect with. Um, yeah. I'd love to talk about this church to a grocery store conversion. Like, was that, <laughs> this is an international buyer. They were just like, oh, this church looks like a great grocery store. That just sounds like something that would be far more complicated than necessary. Is that like a common thing going on over there? Uh, no, it's actually not really common. It's the first time I've actually even heard of it. You know, somebody... You know, those are starkly different businesses. So I think it was more so about the space and the layout. Um, and I think they had a established chain of grocery stores uh, already. So, and they had family in the Detroit area to kind of manage it and run it and stuff like that. So I think it was just like the ideal situation for them. In so cool. And going back to the trust thing, I mean, that's super easy to look up. You can run an MLS search, either you or your agent, if, if you need an agent, and then they can go into the tax records and just search the word trust. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all of these properties, hundreds and thousands of properties will show up. And then you got your database to work with. Right. Which super, super cool. I want you to take us deeper into relationships because you started to mention that now. And I know that's an important part of your business. Can you talk about the relationship cycles? Like, a lot of times I think people can get short-sighted because they don't get value from a relationship as fast as they want it. But talk to us about how long are relationship cycles and what, what's the upside value to maintaining long-term relationships? Uh, relationship cycles in my world are years, you know, um, I might meet someone at a networking event or, you know, through a referral and, you know, the right deal for them might not be on the table at the time or we might try to do a deal and it might not work out. Um, but the key thing is, is don't be so, like you said, short-sighted on the immediate opportunity. And just, you know, because real estate is all relationship-based and it's a longevity game. Um, so eventually, you know, the right situation and the right opportunity will present itself. And if you have something to offer, just by staying in contact with them, you know, sending them deals that might work periodically or every time something good comes across your table. Um, or just checking in with them and just seeing how things are going on, seeing what they're working on, you know, what their pain points are, what problems they're looking to solve in their business and, you know, seeing where you can add value to their situation. Um, oftentimes it's going to have a good return on investment for you. Um, and like I said, by doing all of those things, eventually you're going to close some deals because of that at this time you've built some rapport. Uh, with the person they're comfortable they know that you're about business um you know that you're reputable and when the right deal presents itself it'll be easy just like that oh yeah you also work with your brother mm -hmm. and so i had the opportunity working with my brother for four or five years before he retired and so tell us about what that's like has that just been like singing kumbaya the whole time has it been uh, yeah for the most part you know uh we're equal partners and we work on different sides of the business so i more so am on sourcing properties and acquisition bringing deals into the funnel and he actually works with a lot of the sub of the buyers and closing out the deals and he actually deals with a lot of the international folks as well he has his own very strong network um, of international buyers um, as well. So 
I'm kind of on the acquisition side. Um, he's more so on the exit strategy side. So that's why it works perfect. So I bring him in, he closes them out. Um, but sometimes that obviously flip flops and there might be different mm -hmm. scenarios. But that's typically how we work together. Absolutely. And I love that you have the separation of activities. I think that's important when you're in a business with somebody that everybody is essentially staying in their same lane, right? Um, mm -hmm. Did you guys start out that way or were you guys kind of both doing the same activities and stumbling over each other and kind of stepping yeah, on each other's feet? Yeah, at first we did start out that way. And then we realized what each other's strengths were and what our weaknesses were. And we kind of were honest with each other about that. And then we kind of, okay, devise a strategy where, okay, if I can get this property under contract, I know somebody who's going to buy it. So that's really exactly the dynamic, how it works. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go get 10 properties under contract this week. And we have 10 people who have been asked us for this specific criteria. So that we're going to source exactly what they want um, and make a be matchmakers. <laughs> so that's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, beautiful. I love how you just talked about you guys identifying your strengths and weaknesses and putting the right person in the right place. You guys actually mentioned this on the bigger pockets thing. Like you need to find MVP of your team. I like to say like put your aces in your places. It's like what kind of strategy do you have in identifying strengths and weaknesses that MVP on the team and making sure you're getting them in the right role? Right. So um, as far as like identifying team members or, you know, potential opportunities for partnerships because we JV with people all the time, like literally all the time. Um, so, you know, it's really just simple things like, okay, are you reliable? Um, do you, are you fully transparent when we're going into a deal? Do we have, so we're not blindsided by anything that we should know about, you know, at the last minute? Um, do you follow up? Do you have attention to detail? And if you possess those basic qualities that will make you successful in pretty much any business that you choose to go into, I think there is an opportunity to partner with us because like I said, we JV with investors all the time and we're always looking to do more because you could go farther, you know, we can go farther with working with other people. So true. Like the use of other people as a part of the process is so, so valuable. Mm -hmm. I'd like to dive a little bit more into the partnership itself. 50-50 partnerships can be tough to pull off mm -hmm. because it usually presupposes that both people are equally passionate about the business, yeah. equally desire to work hard, can bring value at similar levels in different parts of the business without stepping on each other's toes. Like there's so many things oftentimes that have to go right in addition to all the compromise. Right. Can you tell us like, what are some of the ways that you've smoothed over some of the challenges with that? Like, or has it just always been, you guys are equally passionate? Uh, from a passion perspective, we've always been equally passionate, but as far as, um, smoothing things over, we have long-term goals that we're aligned on. Um, and we know that we can get to them quicker if we work together, just like I said. Um, and one thing I was, I think I was watching a movie the other day, uh, it's called the house of Gucci. Actually, it's about this Gucci stories family. And there was a lady in the movie who said something that stuck out. It was like a strong family makes a strong business. So, um, that's something that, you know, I kept in the back of my head and just even outside of just business, we just 
we hang out, talk on the phone every day. So it's like just as simple as chewing gum or breathing, so to speak. Uh, it just kind of flows. I hear you. I've been working with my dad for six years, had the opportunity to bring him in. And there just seems to be something as we're talking to people, like when you can show that you have a history of being able to work with family over a long period of time, that people just naturally trust you. Yeah. Do you find that in your business where like being in a partnership with your brother actually not only besides being able to work together, but actually provides better results in your business? Oh yeah, for sure. It definitely provides um, better results um, for us personally. I can look at you know, other families like the Waltons who own Walmart and Walgreens. It's like uh, family-owned businesses. Um, typically, I don't want to say last longer, um, but, you know, you definitely give yourself a chance um, to be successful just because, you know, family goals, family ideals, values, all of those things play a part into the business aspect. So just the way you go about your day-to-day -day operations of the business typically reflects or should reflect, you know, your family values most of the time. So um, that's what's kind of worked for us. Yeah. And it seems like where a lot of businesses are strictly focused on profit, the family business has the dynamic of it's, it's more than just profit. Yeah. There's a built-in component of treating each other well, which oftentimes permeates the culture of yeah. how you treat your customers, clients, et cetera. So talk to me about your long-term goals. Like this, this is something that I'm really passionate about. Like, as Alex Ramosi said that essentially when you set a goal, it's a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you reach that, that desired state. I like and that. so that's made me a lot more conscientious about how I set goals, yeah. you know, like making sure like, is it worth it? That type of thing. Yeah. Tell me about like, what are your goals in life and how did you come by them? Um, so um, my goals, I don't typically set goals about what I'm going to have. Like, for example, from year to year, I set goals based upon what I'm going to do. And what that typically means is I bet set goals on, you know, the actions and the steps I'm going to take to achieve those goals. So I don't look at, you know, this big lofty goal all the time. I break it down into little steps. But specifically, some of the goals that I have are um, to definitely own as many commercial properties and hold triple net leases as possible. I don't want to be liable for as little as possible um, when it comes to real estate uh, litigation and stuff like that scares me. But and definitely getting into like development, um, development, uh, commercial development, multifamily, um, and then single family built to rent is a very high asset class that I think will be fruitful. Just seeing where the market is going. And, you know, people's purchasing power, we are all, we all have heard the talk of a mild recession um, that's on the way and how that will impact the housing market and people's ability to buy. Um, so there's people that still are going to want, you know, the, the feel of a home and the backyard and, you know, a place for their children to have space and raise a family. But they might not, you know, depending on how these interest rates are looking, they might not be able to afford to purchase a home. So what's the what's where's what's the alternative or where's the opportunity? I strongly believe that single family build to rent is a space um, that all investors should be looking to get into um, in the future. It's a great thing to look into between the other podcasts we've had talk about this, this subject and just kind of thinking through quite a bit of it. Like it's, 
it's a very, very interesting space. Yeah. So I would like to know a bit more about triple net and, and to convey that. Cause a lot of times we're talking about a lot of the residential. So triple net, of course, especially absolute triple net is where, I mean, you don't pay for anything. Like the rent is your net. Right. Is that, is that the best way of describing it? Yeah. I think that's uh, definitely accurate. Yeah. So and so if, if you, if you got a building that's triple netting for 5k a month, you're putting 5k a month in your bank account, right? The end. Yeah, for sure. And you know, if you get the right tenant, like a CVS, you know, a strong tenant, your potential for, you know, netting that for a long period of time, you know, increases exponentially. So it's just about, you know, getting in position. That's what I've been working to get myself in position to be able to take advantage of that. So. Uh, I like to, you know, make it easy on myself. I want to, you know, retire and move to the Caribbean, you know, eventually, you know, have that whole dual citizenship thing going on because these Michigan winters are pretty brutal right now. <laughs> For sure. Love that. So, and also, I mean, there's some other benefits of doing commercial. Like if you have to evict a residential tenant in a lot of states in the country, particularly ones that are becoming more and more friendly to tenants, that could be a headache. It could be six months. It could be a year. We're, yeah. we're dealing with an eviction next month on one of my properties. It's, it's been going on for almost a year. We've had to use attorneys. Mm -hmm. stuff. But in the commercial world, it's a bit easier. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's a bit more cut and dry. There's not a lot of gray area into it um, like it would be in the residential where you have to call the sheriffs out and all of this. And you have to provo provide warning after warning um, and go to court and... All that. So yeah, it is a bit less of a headache than the residential side. Absolutely. Are there any cons to the corporate tenant, right? Because you would think that <laughs> this is a better tenant on every level. Not only are you getting the triple net lease, but this is a corporation. They know that they're building monies. It's a franchise, so on and so forth. Are there any negatives to running this type of model? Yeah, it depends on what asset class um, that you're in, you know, that you're acquiring properties and, you know, who your tenant is. So for example, if you are, if you own office buildings right now, you might be having a rough time um, just simply because of where the world is and employees not generally going back to the office like they used to. Um, you have corporations subleasing their space or just reducing their footprint overall. So, you know, you have to be, you know, mindful of where the world is going when you're making investments decisions in real estate, because it's just a mirror of what's going on and the trends in the world where you can find your opportunities, you know, to maximize. So that would be my advice. Just, you know, go with what makes sense. And it opens up a window, right? I mean, in most areas in the country, we have not enough housing. But now we have an oversupply of office buildings and commercial because a lot of things have operationally shifted. Yeah. And so are you seeing in Detroit, I know we're seeing a little bit of it here where a lot of these empty buildings are being allowed to go, res like, so you're turning these downtown properties into housing. For sure. So at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we saw a lot of like hotels that were being converted into multifamily. And now you're seeing some office being converted into that as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the future, but um, you definitely have to, the thing about real estate, you have to be able to pivot, you know, and, you know, adjust to the time. So that's a, that's a key component of being an investor as well. 
It's so interesting to think we're converting hotels into long-term rentals <laughs> while Airbnbs are starting to flourish, right? We're taking houses and making them hotels and taking hotels and making them houses. <laughs> I, I just think that's funny. Yeah. Because it seems like Airbnb has figured out what people want more, which is an experience than a more sterile hotel environment. Yeah, and that's the beauty of Airbnb. I'm actually interested in, you know, really pursuing Airbnb as well. I haven't yet, um, but that's on my to-do list for this year as well. I've just been really trying to decide on the market um, that I want to get into. I've been thinking about Las Vegas, South Florida a lot just places where people are constantly traveling for fun i think will bring me the most success so um if, if anybody out there has any tips for me on that get with me because i'm i'm an eager student <laughs> oh absolutely i'm sure somebody will reach out if not i'm we got a few <laughs> guests to connect you with um we without do. a doubt yeah, yeah. And, and on that note on that note dim i'll let you take it we have guests that are building RTO in South Florida. Yeah, quite um, a few so, actually. Yeah, quite a few actually. <laughs> so what we'll do is whether you want to invest with them or connect with them, we'll connect you guys. But yeah, absolutely. You could buy their properties. You could invest with them. Like there's all kinds of things that can be done. So nice. I great question. That, yeah, yeah. I have some some great connections in Cape Coral for you. Um, so, dude, I mean, where I wanted to go with this is you mentioned. Um, potential of a mild recession, we'll call it. Obviously, nobody has a crystal ball. And you said pivoting is important. Like, what kind of pivots are you looking to make right now? Um, like I said, I'm more so pivoting. Uh, people are not going to be in a position to purchase houses. Like I said, I'm a licensed agent. That means, okay, I'm going to put some focus into this spring market, but I'm not going to have my hopes super high. Just looking at how things are going and I'll probably focus on, you know, Airbnb, or I might focus more on acquiring, you know, starting to build a com commercial portfolio um, to start even just going down the path of, okay, learning what a tenant requirements would be for a triple net lease or what they're looking for or what type of square footage they need, like really doing the research. Um, so really focusing less on, you know, traditional residential deals. I think the wholesales won't slow up as much. Investors are still looking to invest um, and turn that coin. So I don't think there'll be much slowdown there, but um, definitely probably, it probably won't be a market where you're seeing people going 20 over ask or these crazy concessions that we saw the past two years and houses coming on the market and they're gone in less than an hour or been on the market two hours and already have 10 offers. So you probably won't see that. Um, so it's just a little bit of a different market, but I don't think there's going to be anything drastic in my personal opinion. So you've got big goals. You want to live in the Caribbean, yeah. et cetera. So let's say you had a billion dollars in the bank. Let's say you, you, you did some stadium deals, some crazy things go right for you. You're sitting on a, on a billy and you've got a hundred lifetimes of cash flow coming in. Like what, what would your life look like at that point? Uh, what would my life look like at that point? That's a great question. I probably, if I reached that point, I probably wouldn't do anything right away. And I know that's going to sound crazy. I wouldn't do anything. What I would do is I go set up a meeting with a bunch of other 
well cemented billionaires. I try to get a, a meeting with Warren Buffett, uh, your Grant Cardone's, like all of the key power plays and really just pick their brain. Um, and I'd be looking toward the future as opposed to traditional ways of how things have been done. I'd be looking for that next big thing, if that makes sense. I w that's where I would spend most of my focus because at that point, I'm not really hurting for cash. You know, I got more than enough for a couple generations. So I really be focused on how to multiply that um, and just getting in the right circles and getting the right advice from the right people. What a tremendous answer. I love how you immediately went, I would love to connect with the most successful people in the world. If I had all the money in the world, it's like, I would just meet with the richest, the most successful people, and we could get together and create some awesome plan. That is a fantastic answer, man. Um, so, I mean, you've glossed over this a couple times already, but like, what are the long-term goals of your business? Like, let's say 12 to 18 months, what are you looking to accomplish? Um, yeah, we want to continue to um, do deals, but we're more so into holding. Now, so really building our own portfolio um, and holding on for the long term. Um, I talked to a lot of other real estate investors and, you know, who are older than me. And one thing that they commonly all say is, man, I wish I wouldn't have sold anything <laughs> uh, of their own. So, um, you know, really building up a strong portfolio, uh, getting into apartments in the next 12 to 18 months and then on into commercial from that. But, you know, all of these things take capital to do, you know, reserves uh, when you're trying to, you know, get in these deals. So that's our main focus is just getting in a position to do bigger deals um, and building relationships and teaching and connecting with people along the way and helping them recover. So one of the things that I loved about that episode was the fact that like us, we value relationships so much one of the reasons we started the podcast and we we've seen the value of that grow over the last seven months seems that he kind of gets it too. Not only did he mention it pre-show during the show, but then when we asked the question, what are you going to do with the billion dollars? He then recognizes that his status elevates to a billionaire. He now gets access to be with the billionaires and he's going to leverage <laughs> yeah. that connection. Like it, I think that's the first time that someone's mentioned that on an answer, right? Um, the way he did, yes. So Sam Kwok kind of did the same thing. Mm. He's like, I'm going to solve all the world's biggest problems. And he said so by connecting with people like that. Yep. Um, but he's the first one that referenced it. Like, I'm going to connect with all the billionaires and then I'm going to do something amazing. Right. So yeah. and he didn't, it wasn't as much of a collaborative effort. And yeah, he's obviously focused on relationships, which as we preach is the way to go. Yeah. There were so many things that like, he just kind of glossed over. Like he helped an investor get in and do a quiet title action. And I thought about going deeper mm -hmm. into that, but I didn't want to get super technical. So we can talk about it a little bit here. I mean, quiet title action, generally speaking, is when there's there's issues with title relating to who the owners are. And you have to go through a legal process, an attorney, put things in circulation, go through the courts. It's, it's, it can be a fairly timely, sometimes expensive process, sometimes not. But But I mean, like he's done some pretty epic stuff and he's just glossing over it like it's like, hey, this ain't no thing. Um, that was kind of his general attitude to like everything. Like he dropped a few bombs that he just kind of casually threw out there, you know, like not only that, but like the first deal he did was a church to a grocery store conversion, which I mean, just thinking about it, also seeing the churches in Detroit, they're pretty nice. They're pretty old. They're architecturally pretty cool. Um, so like, it's just an interesting way to jump into it. One thing I'd like to do if we have 
the chance of having him back on or just have a conversation with him, I'd love to know what he knows about the deals his grandpa did. I mean, his grandpa did the land leases for Comerica Park and Ford Field and the Detroit Pistons. I mean, that's nuts. Um, that's some big time stuff. Precisely. And and obviously, if he's doing those land leases, that was like at maybe not at the peak of Detroit, but when it was still a booming and growing city, right? It competitive, wasn't quite probably. What it is today. Yeah, exactly. It was definitely a competitive market. I mean, look at those mansions that we saw, right? That Like that was a robust area to live in at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So his attitude towards people was impressive. His, you know, I, I loved that he mentioned that, you know, beauty is in the art of the struggle. Like there was just some really neat mindset elements and quotes that, that he's adopted to, you know, develop the underdog mentality and to, to leverage that into the success. Definitely. I also loved um, real estate as a mirror to the trends of the world. Um, I've never heard it said that way. I, I think that was a good um, little metaphor for, for the way the real estate market is essentially just a reflection of where humanity is heading. Yeah. I mean, it's central because it's people need housing. That's like a basic need. So it's central in that way. But I read a study a few years back where it's like the amount of revenue that's generated once a house sells is absolutely nuts from the renovations that typically happen from all of the trades that get involved. It's like real estate is the, if one of the, if not the most impactful industries in the sense that once a sale happens, it just kicks off an avalanche of other business. And so when the real estate stops flowing, then a lot of things start stop flowing. So I really like how that that quote captures the essence of that that information. Absolutely, man, 100%. So um, we will certainly have your contact information in the show notes. If anybody that wants to get taught or connected with you, obviously you have um, a lot of things to offer. Um, so, dude, Tyler Sarter, thank you so much for giving us your time, giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. Um, drop this dime earlier casually real estate is just a mirror to the trends of the world i really love that um do not put a cap on yourself start the new year off without limits tyler i'm super pumped to see what you can accomplish brother um to those of you out there chasing freedom freedom is acquired one action at a time so we'll give you an assignment on this one if you're not a realtor get your realtor front friend to run a search on tax records for the word trust and go start connecting with international buyers do so within the next seven days and tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.